This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Welcome back to Sergey Young, who wrote the book, The Science and Technology of Growing Young. We talk specific advice about how to grow younger. Check it out. So the thymus disappears or, or starts to shrink after puberty. Yeah. Is there any results from way back when, when, when people were castrated sometimes at puberty, did they live longer? Cause their cause their thymus might maybe, uh, didn't disappear as quickly because of their castration. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. James, look, I'm not, MD, I'm thinking right? like a scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I'm, I, I have three degrees, but, uh, I'm not a medical doctor, uh, or not. And I was thrown out of graduate school. <laughs> yeah. So I uh, couldn't really say that. I, I also think it's, um, uh, it's related to some, uh, other things as well. Uh, because it just, it, I think it's just lower hormonal volatility. I think it's going to be, uh, about different, your, your hormonal composition is different if you went through this kind of surgery. But again, this is just my wild guess. This is not exactly where I focus on. What about these mythical stories about billionaires injecting the stem cells of yeah five-year-olds to kind of return their cells back to their younger existence. Is there any relevance to that? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be sensationalist yeah. here. I'm just, I'm just exploring every angle. Okay, cool. So stem cells, I mean, it's, it's a very powerful tool within regenerative uh, medicine. So this is great, but I, I do think it's the, the, the level of development, which is too early for mass use. So there's just, I think it's uh, a little bit above 10 uh, stem cells interventions, which are approved today by FDA for the whole US. So like majority of people whom I know uh, go to stem cells clinic in Panama or in in Bahamas or in Mexico. And I I do think it's super promising technology and, and, and piece of science. I just don't think we're ready yet for the mass use of it because we still need to test like what are the side effects, how we need to apply it in the more general situations. Imagine I'm in this field, right? So I had an offer to do stem cells ejection like many, many times. I've never done this. So I'm 49. I think I can survive on my longevity bridge by working on something which is available today. And then it's going to be stem cells revolution coming in five to 10 years. Human body is an extremely complex thing, right? If, if one silver bullet would exist, then either through science or through mother nature and evolution, we would then figure out the solution to that. So it's very likely to be combination of different interventions different pieces of science, different technologies, which would extend our life. It's not going to be one single thing, whether it's stem cells or gene therapy or organ regeneration or longevity in the pill. Right. And then before I get to the next generation of what, what you talk about, where we talk about, you know, almost science fiction related things, there's one thing I noticed you didn't, I don't believe you mentioned it in the book, which is fecal matter transplants. So 
there's been studies on rats or mice or whatever where taking essentially the shit of one mouse yep. and inserting it in another mouse gives it gives the second mouse some of the qualities, including the youth of the original mouse. I don't. Yeah. I I believe this research has been done. I don't really know that much about it. Is there anything to that? Okay. So, um, I'm just thinking. Where do I start? Um, and I want you can to start, start by saying you are completely insane. Uh, no, but... you're not. Uh, <laughs> look. So, number one, the role of microbiome, and it's basically all the organisms which uh, you know live in the inside our gut is super important, not only for our immune system, but for our overall health, okay? So that's the thing. So whatever we can do to influence in a positive way, our microbiome is good, okay? Uh, that's one. Two, I think in terms of how healthy the microbiome of the modern human being, because of the industrial food, because of a lot of uh, processed food, because of a lot of sugary drinks that we take, we actually do in very bad job for our gut and its ability to process the food and support our immune system and our overall health. So we are um, fundamentally less healthy than our predecessors who's been able to eat you know, organic food and therefore had much healthier level of microbi microbiome and, uh, and uh, the way their gut works. So that's two. Third, uh, there's a number of diseases of very fundamental nature, and they, they're usually pretty rare, where you basically will be unable to reinstall a healthy level of this, all these beautiful bacteria living in your gut uh, for you to healthy process the food. So in this case, uh, doctors find it easy to prescribe uh, uh, this procedure when you can basically really piggyback on... Um, on microbiome, on all this bacterial composition uh, taken from the gut of the other person in the form of fecal transplantation. But this is very narrow thing. So you need to have very particular medical conditions uh, where you will not be able in a meaningful time to restore your um, microbiome and in the normal work of your gut. So this but what is, about for for longevity, though? Uh, well, I think we have a plenty of opportunities to to reinstall and support our healthy level of microbiome and its ability to process food and support our immune system. It's all about fiber. It's all about plants. It's all uh, about taking probiotics or prebiotics. Um, it's all about taking um, either window fasting or fasting when your gut can actually process all the food uh, in the due terms. So I don't think there's anything fundamental uh, which uh, fecal transplantation can uh, offer to general public. This is very niche intervention uh, used in uh, very specific and I would say difficult cases. We have much more, we have more natural uh, ways to take care of our gut health and diversity of the plants and vegetables that we take is a good way to address it for a normal person. Taking it now one step further, you talk about do-it-yourself diagnosis. Uh, there's a lot of, like, starting with things like the Fitbit, which tells you, you know, how many steps yeah. you walk and, and what your heart rate is and things like that. 
diagnosis using digital and AI means is going to get more and more sophisticated so that diseases that remain undetected sometimes for decades could be detected day by day. And, yeah. you know, the prevention is the cure, as they say. And so one, one of the ways we can improve our lifespan is, is through this very sophisticated uh, digital analysis ongoing on a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis of our system. Yeah. And how far are we away from that? Like we're already, as you mentioned, we're already swallowing robots that could check out our intestines and so on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So James, is it the question about wearables or about the overall level of um, like medical devices and technology? Overall level, like where are we at? What can we do? So, um, you, our model of diagnostics so far was like once a quarter uh, or once a year, we just come to the hospital and we do annual checkup. While it's important and it's just a lot of development happening there, like you can do like full body MRI, some other checkup things and uh, you kind of find, you, you, you tick all the boxes and you will be able to find a cancer or heart disease risk at extremely early stage. So that's actually your recovery rates for cancer will be 93 to 100%. And this is cancer, right? Remember, it was keys of that 20 years ago. While this is important, we're moving to the field of DIY diagnostic, right? That means that we're gonna have plenty of wearables and sensors. I call it internet of body, which will help you and your doctor uh, and artificial intelligence responsible for your health and health of other citizens to define if you have early risks of uh, these killer diseases um, like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, neurodegenerative disease as well. So where this whole thing started with wearables, whether it's Apple Watch, Fitbit, Whoop, it does not matter. It's up to you what to take. You can even take Samsung Watch. And then we have this paradigm that our, well, let's say Apple Watch, for example, uh, it's just a thing which counts our steps. It's not anymore. It's personalized healthcare devices. A recent version of um, Apple Watch, and I'm pretty sure a lot of other variables can take electrocardiogram. So my good really? friend, his doctor, uh, he was like, I think it was back in 2019, uh, on five flights, he's been called to help the other passenger right in the air. He just took out his Apple Watch and took electrocardiogram to, to make sure that whatever is happening with this person, it's not heart disease risk, okay? Then you fall down on the street, which is particularly um, uh, relevant for older people. Uh, it can con call an ambulance for you or... I don't know, your son or daughter or whomever is uh, helping you with that. And uh, right now, I think we just need to add one heart rate variability, uh, your sleep cycles. So this is all very important to create feedback loop on, uh, loop on your health. So with two features, which will be added to this in the next year or two, one is ability to measure your blood pressure and the other one is to measure your level of glucose in your blood. I think every wearable who, who will have this ability, and like I know Apple is working on that, Samsung is working on that, I'm pretty sure Google and Fitbit uh, is working on that. This is like 90% of the data that you need to collect real time, which will help us, help you and help us to identify 
health problems at very early stage. And prevention is like super efficient. Remember recovery rates 90 to 100% for stage one cancer, for depending on its cancer type, to 20 to 30% for stage four cancer. Uh, the same in terms of prevention of heart disease. So it's just gonna be amazing, completely different world. And it's 10 to 20 times cheaper to prevent disease at this early stage than to respond on this in, in emergency mode. So it's, it's not gonna be just good for us. It's gonna be great for the whole planet and our extremely expensive and inefficient healthcare system in the US. Right, and as you mentioned, even in the beginning of the book, you know, rule number one, don't die. And we already know the leading causes of death, heart disease, cancer, strokes, Alzheimer's, diabetes. Not that all of these things are preventable, but they're postponable if by early diagnosis. And I just wonder why more people, like for instance, we know that cigarette smoking leads yeah. to many of these things. Yeah. I wonder why more people just don't stop smoking knowing that it'll probably add a good 10 years to their life because they'll have less chance for heart disease, cancer, stroke, Alzheimer's. Yeah, I'm always wondering, and my father is an example. He had a, a lung cancer back in 2005. He survived, but man shrunk in size by one third. You know what? He's still smoking. And this is father of Sergey Young, of you know longevity enthusiast. Yeah, I still can really figure out why is that. But my guess is the following. And by the way, tobacco smoking is like statistically minus 10 years from your lifespan. It's almost guaranteed. So what do I think? Uh, it's a little bit, it's the same answer to the question why governments are not taking care of our health to the level it needs to be. And we learned and or government learned to deal with something which is important and urgent. The problem with health, it's always important, but it's never urgent, with the exception of mm. COVID, by the way. So you always have this temptation to focus on urgent and important things, but you just delay this whole kind of health thing. And remember, I don't know about you, but like even in my case, I have some important health procedure for next month, and I'm like, well, this is summer. I don't want to do it. I'll just move it to autumn, blah, blah, blah. So again, and the unfortunate reality, like 80% of the people whom I know started their path to healthy living and changes in, in, in taking back control of their health with a wake-up call. And a wake-up call is significant deterioration, usually one time in a shocking way of their own health or health of their loved ones. That's unfortunate reality. We need to respond to the negative shock and then, and this is when we start to work on our health. The final kind of aspect of this is very futuristic. Yeah. But the idea of kind of taking what makes us us, whether our, and this gets into philosophical issues, is our consciousness in our brain cells and so on, but put it into another shell as opposed to this body and keep moving it from shell to shell so that we essentially, our personality, our consciousness lives mm -hmm. forever. Is that science fiction? And of course, science fiction has a tendency to predict the future, as we know. H.G. Uh, Wells had rockets go into the moon, yeah. you know, 90 years before they did. So what's, what's the story with that, you think? Mm -hmm. Great. Um, this is actually very interesting and counterintuitive uh, for me. 
So when we started Longevity Vision Fund, um, I really wanted to invest in uh, robotic avatars, in human avatars, because I thought, well, this is technology of the future, and um, we need to have a little exposure from investment perspective to this project. So we look at uh, three robotic avatars projects, and we said no to all of them. We even uh, look at the project of Dr. Uh, Sasumi Tachi, the, the guy, his professor in, uh, in Japan, who invented human avatar concept back in 1980. We went so far. And uh, the problem is that our material representation in the form of robotic avatars is very expensive. So what we found that it's much easier to replicate ourselves in the virtual world rather than to work on robotic um, representation of us. And that's for me was pretty disappointing because I, I, you know, I like living in the real world, right? I'm a material guy and uh, I would hate just to be like a number of uh, ones and zeros in a computer. Uh, Having said that, I think the development of the virtual reality and computing power, which give us the opportunity to recreate ourselves in the virtual world, and even like to do backup of our mind, uh, is going with enormous speed. And I know quite a few very famous people who are working on their virtual avatars to replace um, uh, themselves. So for example, like let's take me. My resolution for next year is, uh, well, actually to want to find a country to implement national longevity program, to change life of all population in the country, for them to, to be able to live longer. And second, to create my virtual avatar. Because I'm having so many requests for speaking and I want to spread, spread my word because my mission to change 1 billion lives. So I actually need the help in the form of virtual avatar. So this is how far it can go. But what do you mean by a virtual avatar? Will it be you or just something like you? Yes, it's just something like me because 99.9% .9 of questions that I'm asked, they are of the similar nature. They're not similar. They people going from different perspective, right? They have their own audience of one or they are their own audience of uh, millions. But in the end of the day, to recreate the version of Sergey Yan, who can handle 99% of our conversation today, I think it's just, it's, we can do it in the next three to five years. And this will help me to be more efficient with my mission. But I don't wanna move there in a virtual world. But like in, in some of the applications of virtual avatars, people hate the idea of just recreating themselves in a the virtual world. Is uh, it, it can be very helpful. Like my grandfather, uh, made a very important impact on who I am. He died back in 1996. I would still love to have an opportunity to have a chat with him for 30 or 60 minutes every month, right? With, uh, with virtual avatar of my grandfather. So just drawing to the wisdom of previous generation might be one of the kind of good use of it. Potentially AI can be used for this right now. So like, you know, you've seen these text generation engines like yeah. GPT-3 at open.ai. You could feed in all of your writings. It could learn from those. And potentially you could have a virtual you. It would be very, at least in opinion and voice, it would be similar to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what I'm planning to do.
let me pitch this idea to you. Let's say you could go into a virtual reality, you know, using uh, Oculus or some VR headset, and the virtual reality is so good, it seems exactly like the world you're in right now. But so you know you're in a virtual reality, but you don't care because it's exactly, you feel everything, you see everything exactly as you see things now. But meanwhile, in the quote unquote real world, your body is just hooked up to a bunch of machines being yeah. tended to yeah. by yeah. doctors or AI. So it's doing all the diagnosis. It's feeding you all the medicines you might need. It's feeding you food. It's getting rid of waste. It's taking care of you so you could live a longer life while you enjoy the life of the very realistic virtual reality. Would you do that? Oh, of course not. But you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the VR you're in and the real world. I'm assuming that the state of VR moves ahead a few generations. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure, even like with the current state of VR, I know people who said like after the first minute or two in the virtual reality, even if this is like suboptimal representation of reality, you completely lose the sense of like where where you are. Right, that's a known thing. The brain realizes, yeah. oh, this is not what I thought it was, and it starts to feel nauseous. Yeah, I've I've given talks in virtual realities, and you really do feel sick after about a half hour. Yeah. For me, it was about a half hour. Yeah, I'll just stick to the real world. What if the VR is exactly like the real world? And this is this is sort of the simulation hypothesis that any advanced civilization, you know, let's say a billion years old, yeah. can can clearly create a virtual world as as real as this one. We might already be in such a VR and living somewhere else. Yeah, I will not be able, like, because the virtual reality will be completely, well, will look like a, uh, like a real world. I will not be able to tell the difference. Um, so, look, I'm very traditional man in this regard. I like real world and I'd like to stay. It. And I also think that even in the next couple of decades, we'll be able to discover a lot of technologies which would not require us to live in virtual reality to live much, much longer. I'm actually waiting. I call it horizon three of uh, uh, longevity. It's called far horizon of longevity in the book. Uh, I'm waiting for this with combination of uh, uh, excitement, but also fear. On a slightly different but related subject, how can we reverse the effects of aging, if there are any, on the brain? So a common theory or myth, I'm not sure which, says that young people could memorize faster, yeah. can calculate faster, you know, many mathematical prodigies hit their peak even in their early 20s. Yeah. Is this true? Is this reversible? Think about the like reasons for that after we turn 50. It's cancer, heart disease, diabetes, neurogenerative diseases like Alzheimer. The problem is that we don't know a lot about neurogenerative diseases. And the issue is that while people facing cancer and heart disease, roughly in the age of 60, obviously with slight deviations, and that's why we know a lot about heart disease. That's why we know a lot about cancer. We're just breaking this barrier to increase our lifespan. The problem is neurogenerative diseases catch us at much later stage of our life, somewhere between 70 and, and 80 years old. So from evolution of science and technology perspective, we still haven't reached this barrier because this with average lifespan of what, 75 to 85 years old in the world, we're still reaching this barrier because we're having more and more people living longer and now we're facing neurogenerative diseases in completely different scale. 
But it's not just a new neurogenerative disease. And I'm sorry for interrupting. Yeah, yeah. It's also like you're 49, I'm 53. I bet you, you, at the end of the day, you have problems sometimes remembering what you did that day. Oh, sure. Just like I do. Sure. And as a kid, we never had those problems. In fact, I could still remember what I did every day as a kid. Yeah. But I can't remember what I did yesterday. (laughs) Yeah. So, so, and I'm, and we're not, these aren't a neurogenerative diseases. This seems to be, and um, people just accept yeah. this as a matter yeah. of, of uh, cognitive decline as a matter of aging. Yeah. But do we, A, is it true? Or are we just dispersed with responsibility so it's harder? Or is it is it something that could be reversed? Uh, so uh, what do I think? Again, uh, the evolution of the brain through, through uh, our lifespan is still pretty unknown territory to evolution of other organs inside our body. Because it's, it's like super complex, right? Yes. Uh, so <clears throat> what do I think? I do think it's obviously it's part of the aging process and after age of 25, and, as, and especially it's accelerated after you turn 40, uh, aging processes starts in your body and degradation of your, of your brain and your uh, mental capabilities is, uh, is the fact. Uh, how are we going to solve it? Uh, again, I'm, I'm speaking to you as, not as uh, someone who specialized from um, biology point of view, but as an investor, I think much more promising technology, which will help us to solve that, is uh, uh, human brain AI integration or this brain computer integration thing, similar to what uh, Elon Musk does. And the first people which are going to use it is the people who are actually suffering uh, from neurogenerative diseases at later stage in their life. So like, I don't know if you've seen the movie called uh, The Father, right? It's uh, pretty recent. Mm-hmm. It's done by the eyes of, um, of the person who's suffering from neurogenerative disease. I mean, it's really awful. It's a very sad movie. Um, so what's going to happen? I think, and, and Elon does talk about this. Um, so we're going to use human brain AI integration in a field of high performance, high responsibility jobs. But moreover, we're going to help people in very late stage of their life suffering from neurogenerative decline or disease to supplement their brain. And if you think about in terms of like what will fundamentally help us to compensate uh, this degradation of our uh, mental abilities is uh, this approach. Let's take a first generation of it. But let's say I don't want to have the cognitive decline and then just be supplemented by an external uh, factor like the Neuralink that Elon Musk is working on. What if I want to reverse the cognitive decline? And when I say I, I mean society, like everybody, nobody wants to have it. Is there a reason why I have to suffer through cognitive decline? Is that reversible? There's only evolutionary reason. After you, I mean, if, if you think about our purpose uh, from evolutional perspective, I mean, we grow it up, we uh, we reproduce, and we've done. We transfer the wisdom to a certain extent, and uh, we've done. So there's huge evolutionary reason why our body and and it, we genetically predisposed to go through aging process and and die because we were grown in the in the context of limited resources and limited usefulness of the person after he or she done his uh, reproductive function. So, I mean, you can obviously influence that. Like just uh, sleeping well uh, will decrease your risk of 
cognitive decline and suffering from Alzheimer's disease by 40%, for, you know, for zero. Mm. So that's, but this is all lifestyle interventions, right? There's, we don't have a drug uh, today, like a medicine or intervention, which will help you to reverse that. And that's, and it's been the case so far. And that's why I'm so optimistic about um, next inventions and next discoveries in science and technology in the next 10 to 20 years, because our aim is not to slow down the aging. Like what you can do today with your you know, mental ability and, and, and decline of that is slow this down through certain mm-hmm. interventions or lifestyle changes. We want to reverse that. And it obviously requires the work on completely different level, like genetic level as well, or some argumenting ourselves with um, artificial intelligence or computer. This is great, Sergey. I mean, you've answered so many of my questions, both relevant and insane, and I appreciate you you putting up with me. Now, tell me, what supplements do you currently take? Good. Um, So I take omega-3 because I have very high cholesterol level. And I've seen a lot of studies that omega-3 is is just great in terms of prevention of uh, heart disease and as well as your cognitive decline as well. So that's super important. Uh, I'm a big fan of seaweeds and partly because I draw my aspiration for longevity from Japan. Uh, So combination of omega-3 and and seaweeds uh, uh, is great. I take... NMN, because there's so many of my friends in, in longevity field, a uh, big uh, fan of it. I'm there. Sometimes I, what I do, I'm, I'm just take, I'm a big fan of supplements. So what I do, I just experiment with one for one month and then I take a break for five months. So this is what I do. Like, so my supplements of this month is like uh, flaxseed oil. It's, uh, it's another oil supplementation uh, that I take uh, is milk thistle. Uh, it's very good for my liver health. And remember, I have high cholesterol. I need to support it. I have. I just done my annual checkup. Uh, my liver health is like you know, top one percent quartile because of my diet and because of um, you know this and some other supplements that I take. I'm big fan of uh, ginger and and curcumin. Uh, because uh, it's been used in many cultures to uh, prevent aging and uh, for people to uh, influence their health in a positive way. In terms of my mental um, mental health and uh, mental capacity, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, ginkgo biloba, and this is what I take on a regular basis. I've been to Shaolin Monastery in China, uh, and they like they they big fans of this uh, tree and uh, this uh, these supplements as well. So I do think it's it's actually very helpful in terms of uh, supporting our brain health. Um, yeah, that's that's probably it what I can recall. You mentioned probiotics and prebiotics. Do you take those? Not very frequently. Like I just do like one month course, and um, and then just wait for three or four months. Because I, I don't want to supplement my body all the time with uh, uh, supplements. Uh, because I, I'd like my body to rely on its own ability to support my hormonal balance and my nutritional balance and my, my micro, microbiome uh, as well. So I do that. But like the best way to support that, uh, you know, our, our, the work of our gut 
is just eat fiber and uh, plants uh, and vegetables. Uh, this is this can be as powerful as taking prebiotics or uh, you know anything else. Are you a vegetarian? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not religious about this. I I eat meat and uh, fish, but I'm like I'm really selective. What do I eat? It's usually once a week, and it's uh, it should be like super organic meat from the source that I trust with uh, no antibiotics, um, equally bacteria, uh, with no growth hormones, and it should be wild fish, wild uh, uh, taken from the sea or from the ocean. So I can uh, really be sure about how safe is that for my body. But I'm like, I'm really heavy on vegetables. I, I love, uh, as I call, rainbow of vegetables. I'm trying to recreate all these different colors and uh, uh, taking this. I have a lot of uh, vegetarian friends. Uh, just look at their skin and, uh, and, and level of energy. So I'm, I'm, I'm jealous about uh, how they look and how they feel. But my, like with my travel profile and my speaking profile and with my longevity mission, uh, it's just very difficult to have balanced diet if I'm vegetarian. For probiotics, do, do you make sure they get shipped to you frozen? Do you buy it special or do you just go to the store and get probiotics? Uh, it's both. So like, you know, I can buy like a Solgar uh, and a uh, room temperature. And sometimes I, uh, it, it's more like a dairy product, fermented. Uh, and then I store it in, uh, uh, in a fridge. Okay, and then in terms of a lot of the uh, things we talked about, you mentioned how you would rather not experiment, but it's only yeah. five or 10 years before the, we really see which technologies could make significant improvements to our anti-aging abilities. What's the first one or two things that you're waiting to see that excites you that you think you'll be able to take personally? Great question. Um, first of all, as soon as longevity drug will be uh, approved, I will take uh, whether it's going to be metformin, rapamycin, or something invented by artificial intelligence, I will take that. Because drugs mm. is like is our default mode uh, for addressing the problems with our health. So I'd be really happy to uh, take it. Or if this is not going to be invented until I will turn 60, which is in 11 uh, years from now, I'll just see my doctor and we'll ask for metformin. Uh, so that's uh, one thing. Um, Second thing, I'm not sure I'm going to be experimenting a lot soon with uh, gene editing uh, because it's still, uh, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, human DNA is like extremely complex thing uh, with a lot of side effects, uh, which are unexpected or very long term. Um, but like regenerative medicine as a field uh, can be like really super promising. So I'm talking about stem cells whenever we, they're going to be approved. And I'm talking about organ regeneration or organ supplementation whenever they will be approved and will be available. What about the Yamanaka factors? So basically, um, as soon as this uh, going to be used, uh, well, it's just in, it's just the other field of uh, gene therapy, right? So as soon as uh, they're going to be approved uh, for mass use, and it's going to be drug or intervention, intervention, which will be available to me. I will always, obviously enjoy it. 
But remember my earlier point on using gene editing, gene therapy, all this um, uh, genomic medicine field. I don't expect that society and regulators will be comfortable with offering this to general public. And I consider me, myself as a part of general public. I don't want to experiment um, anytime soon. So it's just 10, probably even 20 years from now. And, you know, finally, and I promise this is the, the finally, you, you're, you're in charge of an investment fund that invests in longevity related companies. You raised, I believe about a hundred million dollars. Yeah. How did you do that? You weren't a doctor, you weren't an investor. Like who gave you a hundred million dollars to invest in these companies and what, co what sort of companies are you investing in right now? Yeah. So I'm investor in private equity and venture capital for the last 20 years. But I was investing in the old style, as I call, boring industry. I love them, but uh, people find it conservative, like transportation and logistics, real estate, real estate development, food retail, etc. So I had my investment expertise before that, and I, I've, I'm managing, and I've managed, and I'm managing a few billion dollars already. And this is not my money, right? This is money of other people who trust me. So when I uh, as Aubrey de Grey says, uh, caught my longevity virus a few years ago, I just reach out to the guys and say, guys, there's this new thing developing. I don't know whether we will make money there or not, but number one, we'll obviously have a chance to make a world a better place. Second, uh, you'll have early access to what is happening in the, in the world of longevity. And third, we might be able to make some money. I don't know. I can't really guarantee. So if you are for these three areas of our focus and uh, these three ideas, well, let's just do a small longevity vision fund. I thought it's going to be 50 million fund, but I raised my first 50 million in the first five minutes. So it's insecure overachiever. I thought, okay, I need to raise the bar. So it's uh, I was just then raising 100 million, not 50. Uh, but obviously, it's all the outcome of my trusted relationship with uh, a lot of uh, people who invest with me for many years from U.S. and Europe. Um, well, in the last, it's it's almost like the outcome of uh, last twenty years uh, of my work. So that's that's uh, that's about fundraising. Where do we invest? Um, we took intentionally broad definition of longevity. So whatever increase the average health span and lifespan of the world, we call it longevity. Uh, so we invest in a lot of biotech companies who has one positive side effect, improving human health and our increasing our health span and lifespan. So it's a broad, right now we have 16 companies and it's a very broad range from early diagnostic, like early cancer diagnostic in the form of Freenom affordable diagnostic devices like echo imaging, which created the uh, ultrasound diagnostic device with cost of $2,000, not $100,000 like we have today. Uh, organ regeneration companies like Lightgenesis. This is the company from Pittsburgh, which use our lymph nodes to regrow liver and thymus. And uh, they have a pipeline of uh, more organs to regenerate. We didn't invest in human avatars, as I told you, and we're big fan of... Uh, Gene therapy and gene editing technologies, a substantial part of our portfolio is uh, platform technologies. Like we invested in company which has the, uh, the one of the biggest library of uh, different viral vectors. And this is the means how you can do gene therapy uh, for uh, humans. 
I don't know if this answers your question. Yeah, we're looking at 200 companies a year. It's just amazing. I can like spend hours in these labs and with these entrepreneurs. Yeah, no, it's all it's all very interesting. I'm always just curious about how people get their start and, and make these decisions and so on. Well, uh, Sergey Young, author of The Science and Technology of Growing Young. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And again, I know I just threw a ton of questions at you, but this is a fascinating subject and I've done, I've had a, quite a few podcasts on this, on this topic. I have some knowledge, not as much as you, and I really enjoyed reading your book. It really kind of filled in a lot of the holes in my knowledge. And, and it's such a, an expansive book covering everything from what's available now, what's available tomorrow, what's available in the future. And you deal with the kind of philosophies of, of anti-aging and so on. It's, it was, it's a great read. It's very informative. It gives me hope for my own future and hopefully for the future of our listeners here. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and good luck with, uh, I hope all your investments are a success, not only for your sake, but for mine. Thank you. Thanks, James. And thanks to everyone in the audience. Stay healthy and happy, please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>